And now, coming to you from the far side of a big night, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. You're 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 really you're really fading out there. You're really sort of that's sort of like Kermit on the edge of despair. <laughs> well, um, you know, I guess I guess to to sort of give some con- you know, some sort of context for our listeners, and I'll apologize up front. I was at a whiskey tasting last night. Uh-huh. And the proprietor of Ticonderoga Publications home and had a fine time. But I will confess, yeah, I, I woke up a little bit the worse for wear. So we, I am podcasting through a mild haze. Well, that's the way I do it every week. So welcome to the club. There you go. I, have, <laughs> I, have uh, I'm, I was going to suggest that we... Um, what, what, I, I'll tell you, I, I told you this before the podcast, but right now on my television set is a program from BBC America called, it's called The Real History of Science Fiction or something along those lines. And I'm watching it without listening to it, which is a big improvement uh, <laughs> over last week's first episode. Uh, and this week's episode, well, now they're showing scenes from Avatar, but at least the screen has shown me uh, the image of Ursula Le Guin talking and the image of Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't know what they're saying. But they are not getting nearly as much screen time as actors from Star Trek or or, or, or Haley Joel Osment, who was in The Sixth Sense, who wasn't hasn't even been in a science fiction movie. I don't. Th- no, he was in he was in that Steven Spielberg thing, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, AI. No. No, he was, was in The Sixth AI? Sense. Haley Joel. Well, he was in AI as well, but he was in The Sixth Sense. That yep. was his breakthrough. My point is. My point is the credentials. Douglas Trumbull, who actually is a member of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, was inducted. Yes. A special effects designer who directed one really embarrassingly stupid movie called Silent Running, but it looked good because the special effects were fine. Um, these are the authorities on science fiction. So one of the things I have in the back of my mind that we can talk about tonight is that science fiction still, after all these years, needs better PR. <laughs> well... I, I, if, if your basic point is that when the community at large talks about science fiction, they don't talk about what those of us who are within the science fiction field talk about most often, I guess that's true. Though you could also put forward the view, Gary, that science fiction is a large house, as it were, and the media side of science fiction is just as vital and important a part of science fiction as anything else. It's just that it's the one that most of the community at large sees when they don't see the the literary side of it. I think that's true. And I think there's, I have no argument with the notion that science fiction film and television is as worthy of attention in its own way as science fiction literature is. There Mm -hmm. are people who specialize in this, there are people who give papers on it. They're, 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 they're scholarly things. But I think the question is one of perspective. The question is one of the beginning of this show, for example, where I did actually listen to the soundtrack. And by the way, mm-hmm. just as a general recommendation for our listeners, watching documentaries with no sound is almost always better. <laughs> well, because, because hang on. I would say that would be true if you knew what the, anything about the subject of the documentary. Well, that's probably true as well. Okay, here's Zoe Saldana, the authority on science fiction. Fine, but this, this okay, this this particular program started off with science fiction is as old as movies. So they showed some scenes from um, from the 
uh, Trip to the Moon, the uh, Georges Méliès film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they, then they showed a paperback cover, a ni- 1940s paperback cover of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. So it went from Méliès to a cover shot of an H.G. Wells novel to Star Trek. And the next 20 minutes were about Star Trek. This leaves you with the impression, it leaves the innocent viewer with the impression that there was this really interesting guy in 1893, this French filmmaker, uh, who made a movie called From the Earth to the Moon, even, and, and by the way, not acknowledging Jules Verne in that at all. And Méliès gave way to H.G. Wells, who gets maybe eight seconds of screen time, who gives way to Gene Roddenberry, who invented science fiction. Maybe what they're thinking is that uh, Méliès would have made a really great, directed a really great episode of Star Trek. I think Méliès would have had a lot more fun with it than some of the directors of Star Trek episodes did. Not the least Roddenberry himself. Um, or Exactly. Look, I, I guess there's, all, well, any area that you're in, science fiction or otherwise, is always going to have some conflict between its most popular and populist image and its more refined side. Uh, I think that's true of almost anything that's consumed in culture. So it's not surprising or distressing, and I, but I don't know there's much you can reasonably hope to do about it. I mean, in this day and age, it's hard enough to get any attention for printed material of any sort, just about. I think that's uh, true. Uh. And yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, it would be a you know a relief if some of the good quality, and there's some very good quality, popular and populist printed w- f- stuff was talked about more. Uh, it does seem that the, sh- the shortest path to a bestseller list now appears to be through an HBO TV series. You know? Yeah, that's true. Which is, which is I guess it, means it at least leaves a path open. I mean, one of the nice things that's happening, and you would have seen the announcement as I did in recent weeks, is that mm-hmm. Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank's space opera series, The Expanse, that started with Leviathan's Wake, that comes out under the name mm-hmm. James Corey, is going to be made by t- into a mini TV sh- series. Now, they're definitely or is it at some contract stage? No, it's been greenlit. They're making it now. Oh, okay, great. That, that's I mean, terrific. It, it was one of those things where that, I think the reason it was such a big announcement was, I mean, every, stuff gets optioned all the time. And I don't know, know listeners if you're familiar with this, but years ago I remember being sort of briefed in a somewhat kind of uh, paternalistic way by our, by our friend Charles about the way that every writer in the world will go out and sell film rights just about anything. And really, it's all about selling the film rights rather than ever getting around to anything made. In this instance, they bought it to go direct to production. Hmm. Yeah, they, they bought The Expanse to take it direct to production. So I forget who's making it. Sci-Fi Channel, I think, are making it, actually. The people who made Battlestar Galactica. Okay, that's... Okay, here's another thing where I I, I, I have a lot of respect for Battlestar Galactica. That, that happens to be one of the rare series that seem to be conceived... And execute it as a science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things in it that looked like cliches to people who have been reading science fiction. But they were it was done with a straight face and it was an honest series. Yep. Uh, I'm not complaining about uh, science fiction series or fantasy series that are good series. Certainly Buffy was a very good series. Uh, there were episodes of the original Star Trek that were very good. Uh, I guess I guess what I'm concerned about is not I'm not I'm not trying to exclude that from the history of science fiction no. or from the discussion about science fiction. What I would like to do is include practicing writers when things like this BBC series, BBC series shows up, that science fiction is more than um, the movies. Now, admittedly, 
in making a documentary film of any sort, having an author talk to the camera, no matter how many, how dramatically lit Ursula Le Guin might have been in that figure, <laughs> is never as visually stimulating as shots from Avatar. So they're going to they're going to always favor movies in this sort of thing. So what um, you're saying is that in future we could get we should get science fiction writers animated by the people who did Avatar, and then they can talk film. about their books. Motion capture versions of John Scalzi. I'm sure I've already seen that. Oh. Well, I was on a panel discussion at C2E2, which is our local comic. It's not really a Comic-Con. It's an entertainment con now. Comics are a large part of it. And I was on a panel with Daryl Gregory and um, and Scalzi and a young writer named M.D. Waters, Misty, Misty Don Waters. That's actually her name. And it occurred to me, that Scalzi was clearly the most recognizable name in the room. Scalzi yeah. is a major celebrity in print science fiction. Yes. Um, and he has a following, and he does what he does very well, and he has a new novel coming out called Lock-In, which is very different, and so far I'm impressed with it. But the thing is, he's a, he's a blogging superstar, he's a fan superstar, he's a novelist superstar, and he's well aware of the fact that once you get outside of our narrow community, into the world represented by... Um, this documentary that I'm watching on BBC America, he's not really much more important than anybody else. Sure. But, I mean, that's normal for just about anybody, isn't it? I mean, if you look around the writing world, that's pretty, no pretty mm. normal. Well, it's normal until you get a couple of movies made out of your book. I mean, to some extent, Elmore Leonard, for example, became a media celebrity after three or four movies had been made from his novels because people suddenly realized he's a bankable name. Um, I don't, and, and I think the same thing happened with Dennis Lehane, who's had, as far as I know, two movies made out of his mystery novels, one called Gone Baby Gone and the other one, Mystic River, both terrific movies. So that can happen and you become a name in Hollywood, even if you don't write the screenplays, have nothing to do with the films. I don't know that that's happened to any science fiction writer since probably Arthur C. Clarke. Possibly so. Uh, it I mean, may happen it's, it's, to, to James Corey if this stuff takes off, but possibly so. It may happen to James Corey, and, and in parentheses, of course it's happened to Philip K. Dick, but, you know, years and years after he was too dead to enjoy it. Actually, you know, that, that's, okay, sh sh you know, sh sorry, short, short of getting to true superstar status like Philip K. Dick or George Martin, I would have thought the truth is that even getting your stuff made into a film won't make you, indiv you know, individually a star. There are any number of people who have had films made of their books or TV shows made of their stories or whatever it might be. And, I, you know, you could go through, through a list and, and sort of go, well, there's this person, that person, and I wonder if it really made them into major celebrities or household names. Quite often what seems to happen is the work becomes well-known anyway. I mean, okay, did three Starship Troopers movies make Heinlein a household name for most people? Not really, no. And by the same token, two versions of Dune didn't make Frank Herbert a household no. name. Now, Game of Thrones has put George Martin on the cover of um, Rolling Stone and has made mm -hmm. him a Halloween costume dresser, which is weird. <laughs> but, you know, that's pretty unusual. So maybe maybe what we're hoping for is something that's just not practical, and that is that the, a balance will come to the way that something like science fiction is reported in, in the documentary like the one you're talking about that covers print well enough. I, I think it's probably not very realistic to hope for it. I will say this. How many episodes does this documentary have and how many have you seen? 
I don't know. This is the second one I've seen. Um, it's now showing the cover of some British paperback reprint of Asimov's Foundation trilogy. It may be getting better. I mean, I'm, I'm really here uh, watching this thing without listening to it. And, and, and yet, as soon as they show Asimov's Foundation trilogy, they bring on some guy who is, I can't, I, I'm, I'm waiting to see the identifying thing, but he's some executive producer of a TV show. My point is that there are people who know how to talk very knowledgeably about, about science fiction ideas, and it's very difficult for those people to get any kind of a platform. Okay, I think that's true. Even most popular among us have a hard time doing that. I, I think that's true. They have had like this, so. Okay, but, but let, I'm going to push this back to something which has happened outside of the conversation we've had right now, which is in your email, okay. right? Original oh. question you asked me was, Talk, is it, we should, we suggested we should talk about whether science fiction is making any progress in terms of its public image, right? Mm. Now, on one hand, I think it's made significant progress because its public, public image, first of all, is much more recognizable than it's ever been. Print science fiction, however, has been decimated, particularly if you make a difference, a distinction between science fiction and fantasy, because by and large, print stores don't carry much science fiction any longer. They carry fantasy, but very little science fiction. Yeah. So it's read less, it's seen less, it's discussed less. Hmm. Certainly there was more science fiction, as I understand science fiction to be, irrespective of the individual writers, on bookstore shelves five years ago and ten years ago and twenty years ago. I think that's true. And there were more bookstores five years ago than ten years ago. There were many more bookstores. There were many more, you know, options for somebody to get to, to get um, fiction. But science fiction has been pushed off the shelves. And well, now, we, I mean, we, we could argue about why, but I think that's true. So, so do those of us in the field who get worried about things like Hugo Awards balance, for example. Are we overestimating the importance of science fiction? Has it become so marginalized that we're simply deluding ourselves and what we thought was a major literary movement has become a cult? Okay. First of all, it was always a cult. Second of all, um, of course we're not deluding ourselves because it's that important to us. And that's the key. Irrespective of how, it's, how important it is to the community at large or how important we'd like it to be, this is our interest, this is our community, this is what we do, science fiction is just exactly this important to us. Otherwise, we would not record 186 episodes of a podcast discussing it. Um, there would not be, where are we now? I forget how many years in since, was it 65 years of Hugo Awards or something? Um, we think it's important. Now, we could d debate whether we think a particular award's important or not. And truthfully, probably on balance in the world, any individual award is, isn't that important. But in terms of image and taking it seriously and progressing, sure, it is. It is. It's important to us, and that's enough, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think. It's, well, I mean, there's a point at which, um, and this is this is a cliche, and we've talked about it before. And I wasn't even the first one to come up with it. I think probably Kingsley Amos was. There's a comparison to say modern jazz, yes, which is a very very tiny part of the music market. Yes, um, and jazz has never been. Maybe in the 30s and 40s, but, but the point is, it's considered a niche interest. And I think to some extent, science fiction has never escaped that. And to some extent, probably doesn't want to. Um, the only thing so, that's escaped um, that is the, is the iconography of science fiction. Well, that's, the iconography okay. of science fiction has become part of mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating that some of the ideas and tropes of science fiction 
are so uh, common now that people wouldn't question them. I would be curious that if you, if, you know, if you were able to conduct a survey in 1950 mm-hmm. and see how many people were familiar with or would recognize the idea of time travel, for example, and now you could drop it into a, a mainstream piece of entertainment without explanation and people would pick it up. Mm-hmm. And the same for cloning and the same for multiple universes and all this kind of stuff. I think this, I think that's true. And I think one of the things that some films have done is to educate the audience in a very useful way about science fiction tropes. And I think, I think the idea of time travel and time loops and time paradoxes um, was really popularized by the three Back to the Future films, what, 20, mm-hmm. 20 some years ago now. Yes. Uh, because they, they, they were essentially comedies, but, but they, they worked out the time um, contradictions in a way that a science fiction story would. And after that, time travel became not only something that you could use in any movie, like Looper, but it became a, 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 a trope in romance fiction, like The Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah. So you can do that. You can deal with aliens coming to Earth, and it just becomes a story about alienation. Um, the, the old idea that uh, I think uh, Samuel R. Delaney first came up with, and it's been repeated by a lot of people, including Le Guin, that science fiction literalizes metaphor, um, is not what's actually happened. I think what the, re- what the reverse has happened. To some extent, um, science fiction has become a metaphor for anything anybody wants to talk about. So if you want to talk about alienation, you can now introduce an alien creature um, with out worrying about the uh, the audience understanding what it is. Yeah. You can have mainstream films. There are at least three or four mainstream films that didn't identify themselves as science fiction movies in the last couple of years that dealt with the end of the world. Um, yeah. You know, a planet is coming to collide with the, the whatever. And all those were just simply, okay, we can use this now as a narrative trick because everybody knows what it is. And so to that extent, I think you're right. I think to that extent, science fiction has given to the world a whole bunch of narrative tricks or gimmicks that can be used by anybody. And I think that does happen quite a bit. Yeah. Which is but, interesting. But it, it, it's interesting. Um, I wanted to quote a point that you made earlier, that science fiction was a very large house. Mm-hmm. I think you said something along those something lines. Something along those lines, yes. And do, you, do, you ever, do you ever sit around and compose a tweet and then think, nah, I'm not going to tweet that because... Because I myself have a hard time dealing with other people's philosophical tweets. Sure. Yes. 140 characters of philosophy is something I just don't want to bring myself to do. But I thought of this tweet, so I'm going to share it on the podcast since I didn't tweet it. <laughs> okay. This is a new section. Yeah, coming to you now, now, now from the Co-Creature Podcast. It's untweeted tweets. Untweeted tweets. Because I don't know if it comes out to 140 characters, whatever it is. My untweeted tweet is exactly what you said. Science fiction is a large and generous house. Mm-hmm. And the price of that is that we must accommodate small and ungenerous people. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. The cost, the, 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 the cost of freedom of speech is everybody gets to say what they want. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the price of, well, yeah, that's the price of it. The cost of it is, of course, that this is, this is freedom of speech, not freedom from the consequences of your speech. So, you know. Well, the, the one thing that several people have pointed out, though, uh, in, in, in this discussion and other discussions, things that have come up apparently on the SFWA bulletin and so forth, 
freedom of speech as it's defined in the United States Constitution, and I don't actually know how it's defined in Australia or the UK or France or other countries, simply says the government cannot institute prior censorship over what you're saying. It has nothing to do with whether an individual organization can do that. You can set up your own mm -hmm. regulations sure. for proper speech within a university, within a community, well, not not, not within a governmental community, but basically if, if you want to say, I am not going to publish these offensive words in my, my magazine, if somebody uses offensive words, and we then can- it's your right to do so, yes, absolutely. It's your absolute right to refuse to publish that sort of thing. And, and, and also for clarity, for, for, for the purposes of clarity, doing so is not censorship. And it's not censorship, exactly. Uh, censorship as defined by our First Amendment is government censorship, period. Yeah. Well, well, but also, also slightly more broadly, what you'd say, I'd have to say is censorship is, is stopping you saying something, right? So yeah. stopping you saying it on my blog, say, or in my website or in my magazine or newspaper, well, that's not censorship if there are other av avenues for you to say this, what you have to say, you know. It's, it's, it's not censorship as long as it's a personal decision in terms of who runs the magazine or the mm, blog sure. or the discussion yeah, yeah. board. Uh, that, that, that's completely reasonable. But by the same token, it's like uh, saying that the editor of, well, okay, you, you tend not to do open admissions with your anthologies where you just, anybody can send me a story. But you know that, you know that Sheila Williams at Asimov's gets tons of unsolicited, unpublishable manuscripts. Choosing some manuscripts as being publishable over others does not mean you're censoring the unpublishable manuscripts. No. It means you're making selection. That's true. Now, I have to say, I've rarely heard anybody suggest that you were censoring somebody. Though I guess every now and again you come across a slightly ill-informed soul who might see it that way, I guess. You get somebody who's been writing letters to the editor of the New York Times or, 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 the, or, the, or, the, or the Guardian or the Chicago Tribune. And they never get their letters published because they're completely maniacal. They're insane. They're awful. <laughs> they feel that they're being censored because their their letters to the editor are never published for. Um, so apart for from making the, the point that happily or unhappily, the house in which we we live in, in you know, has to encompass views and people you know, that we don't necessarily endorse. Mm -hmm. Where does this take us, Gary? Other than a general observation in these interesting times that we live. Um, I'm not sure it takes us anywhere definable. I think what it what it tells us in terms of the recent controversies over the Hugo Award is that if we're going to have the kind of community we want to have, we have to live with this. Um, pretty much. I mean, I th there are any number of camps out there on this issue. You know, the issue of the, you know what's happening with Fox Day and all that kind of thing on the Hugo ballot. Mm -hmm. We didn't especially seem to intend to come here, but we've got here, so. Um, and I vacillate a little bit. There is the John Scalzi position, which is, hey, these are the rules. Everybody gets to play. Uh, mm. The community gets bigger. And so what you have to do is take them on with the rules as they sit. You know, look at their yeah. works, consider their works, make your decision, put them above the no award, put them below, leave them off your ballot, put them on, do whatever you want. And then we'll see how it all plays out in the wash. And I've got a suspicion as to how I think it will, pl will play out in the wash. And I have some sympathy for that. But then there is also the idea that at least one or two of the people who are involved with the sad puppy slate yeah. have views that significantly marginalize 
the people who are already marginalized and disadvantaged in our community and in any way endorsing those views is something that we would want to be at best careful of if not actually outright run from and i am a little bit sympathetic to that view too i mean i've I've read any number of quite intelligent and clearly stated pieces that having you know if if the hugo is our is our vanguard award out there and people will go back and forth on whether they think it is but if it is then having vox day on that ballot makes life harder for people who are not privileged i believe that's true and, and i if, believe that's yeah and if that's true then that's something that we have to look at very closely i don't know that you can you counteract this though by changes to awards to their rules or whatever else, this is something that would happen communally. I mean, I, I suspect there's every good chance that if the Vox Day you know, sort of area of the community becomes active in the Hugos, they will continue to be a part of them for some years to come until they lose interest or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, unfortunately, the only rational way that I can see to counteract that is to be aware of it, to be vocal against their views, and to vote accordingly. I can't see what else you can do. I mean, you're not going to turn and say, so-and-so, please pass my, uh, my, my, my philosophical and moral test so that you can be on the ballot. Uh, you're not going to turn and say, please go along and ch- you know, change the rules in any billion ways to try and prevent it, because it's not a rules-preventable thing. I don't think it, it, well, it, it's got to be the community becoming active. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this is one of the things. I, I think the message that arrives is since we've got into this. Uh, if there's a message, it's the uh, it's a message that has to do with the limited involvement that most readers have had over the last several years with Hugo Awards in most categories. In other words, the number of nominees nominations it takes to get on the ballot is. I don't know if it's smaller than it's ever been, but it's larger um, than it's ever been. It's probably larger than it's no, ever no, no, been, I mean, but as a portion of readers, we don't know. The fact is, people allow this to happen by not choosing their own texts and voting for them. You could look at it that way, sure. Yeah, I think that's probably a. It's pushing things a little to say they allow it to happen. Um, well, it would ha- but certainly, what you would think is that the more and more people who vote and are active in the in, in the awards the more um hopefully uh you will get generally representative views on the ballot now i will say that there's a risk here and you could read this slate i don't really but you could read it as being a swing back gary mm-hmm. to a more conservative point of view because there is no doubt that over the last five years the field has swung to a more open and inclusive and welcoming kind of a view, and that's shown up on ballots, which I think is a, a brilliant thing, and that's what should be happening. Oh. Uh, but I could see a, there's obviously a, a, a school of thought within the field that's less impressed with this. You know? And um, and representative means representing shitheads too. The thing is... Um Okay, the shitheadedness of, the, of, of, of this particular ballot has to do partly with, with a political a set of political and racial and social yep. and psychological attitudes that a lot of us find anathematic. But at the same time, you and I both know and have good friends in the field 
who have conservative political views that we don't even come close to sharing, which does not dominate their fiction. It's the fiction is not a, a screed about their political views. There are people who have personal views that I don't agree with, who I consider to be good friends and excellent writers. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the issue here. The issue is here is the issue here seems to be whatever text we can find that we can throw up uh, will do because the point is not recognizing this text. The point is getting on the ballot. That's a separate. I, okay. That's a separate I don't know that I agree with that quite. Having read some of the posts around it, if you mm-hmm. take the people involved, by and large, as reasonable people, and in amongst the group, I'm sure there are. What actually appears to have happened is two separate things have happened. One is, yes, people want to politicize the Hugo Awards and mess around with what ends up on the ballot. But then a ballot, a slate was proposed, and I don't know, I would, I'd be willing to bet that apart from some naked self-interest, that um, an element of it has to do, more to do with wanting... Um, yeah, there's nothing that says they haven't actually picked stuff they think is good. Right? Can you hear me? Uh, you just dropped out at the uh, Sorry, moment. Sorry, can, can you hear me now? Okay, just, just quickly, there's nothing that says to me that they don't believe what they've nominated is good, apart from the point where it's naked self-interest. And that's that, that's a separate issue, because you look at the, the, the sad puppy slate, and it is filled with naked self-interest, right? It, it, it is. There are a couple of people's on. Uh, there are a couple of people on that slate that I know personally that I don't think I would want to necessarily tar with that brush automatically. Yeah. Oh well, look. Oh sure. I mean, if we're if we're going to sort of name names, Larry Carrere and I think Brad Torgerson were involved with this and have been beneficiaries mm-hmm. of it. I have no reason to imagine that Tony Weisskopf has anything to do with it. And I don't I've, think Tony. And I've got no reason to think actually she's an unworthy nominee. I have to say, uh, as the head editor at Bain, who've been very successful and have published some very good books, I think she's a perfectly well. There's, there's reasonable, there's always and respectable the nominee. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well, the argument that certain kinds of science fiction get underrepresented in various venues, and we're not only talking about the Hugo Ballot. We could be talking about. Um, what shows up in Asimov's or fantasy and science fiction? What shows up in your year's best or in Gardner's year's best or in Rich's year's best? There are people who feel that they're, mis- that they're underrepresented in all these venues. Uh, there's a certain uh, a kind of sort of, uh, well, let's, let's, let's be honest. The, the, the best example is analog. Mm-hmm. Analog seldom shows up in year's best. Its, its stories seldom show up on Hugo and Nebula Balance. It's still the most popular magazine in the field. And I could understand completely why readers of that magazine who enjoy what they see in it and don't want to see it much different from what they've been seeing the last several years may feel underrepresented during awards seasons, in anthologies, in best of the year selections, in the Locus Awards nominees. Uh, There might be a, a, a genuinely disenfranchised group of readers. Or they feel themselves to be genuinely disenfranchised. Well, there's a couple of things I'd say to that. The first is, I'm, I would wonder whether actually analog still is mm. the most read source of science fiction in the field. Because it's hard to map the actual numbers of readers, some of the online venues, but they're really quite high now. 
Mm-hmm. And there actually is something um, similar in tone to several of them. And so they begin to become a larger collective group. Yeah. I, I would say, though, that to the extent that Analog has had a, a, a stable subscriber base for a long period of time, they've not been, been a an active group when it comes to voting in the Hugos and that kind of thing plainly. No. Why? I don't know. I will say that, you know, if, if somebody were to turn around and start running a campaign within the context of analog to pay more attention to the Hugos and to vote, I wouldn't quibble with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting against a background, and we're talking way too much about this. Um, it's interesting against a background where more people nominated this year for the Hugos than ever before by mm-hmm. a huge margin. If that carries through, and I think it will, more people will vote for the Hugos than ever before by a large margin. That's not nothing. I mean, we're still talking... I mean, what, the nominations are up to nearly 2,000. Right. And I think, you know, and I think, you know, prior to that, there's barely cracked 1,000 at any point. Uh, and I don't know they've ever had more than 1,000 people vote. Which is a tiny number when you look at the market for any kind of fiction, really. Uh, I mean, it, it, it suggests to me that the Hugo Awards have always been um, the decision of a relatively small group of people, sure. uh, of which a small minority uh, loses to a small majority, which is, you know, in the larger scheme of things. I mean, I'm sure that we've talked about this before, that trying to connect Hugo Awards or Nebula Awards or Pulitzer Prizes or Nobel Prizes with anything that happened to that author's career later or anything that happened to that work's career later is... Pointless. But but what number is going to make somebody happy? I'm mean, afraid a number of comments online from people saying, you know, the Hugos are a terrible joke. Uh, too, too few people vote for them. Too few people nominate for them. It's an absurd joke to call them a, you know, a world science fiction award, all this kind of thing. And, you know, what number do you need for it to be representative or meaningful? I don't know. It's a survey of... Well, this year it'll be a survey of maybe 8,000 people, and if 2,000 people participate for this sort of thing, that's a pretty decent percentage, actually. I think it's a decent percentage, and I think, it's a, I think it says something about the community as traditionally defined. But you're absolutely right about the criticism or the comment or the caveat that it calls itself a World Science Fiction Award. The World Fantasy Award is the same issue. The World Series in Baseball is the same issue. If... Chinese science fiction fans were to organize themselves and decide that they wanted to join Worldcon en masse, we would have Hugo nominees that most of us had never heard of. I believe there's been some, some talk of Worldcon going to Beijing. There is. There's a, there's a Beijing um, um, bid in for it. I think it's opposite Kansas uh, City. Yeah, and if uh, last time I, I ever paid much attention to this, and I, I confess my you know the data is way out of date, uh, the Chinese magazine Science Fiction World, if I recall correctly, had somewhere in the vicinity of a quarter of a million subscribers. I remember talking to our friend Charles Brown when he yep. used to go to China on these what were essentially junkets, and he would um, be speaking uh, with whoever else went went with him. I can't remember. I'm sure Connie Willis was with one trip probably. Yeah. And they'll be speaking to a, a group of six or 7,000 people in an auditorium, which would be the entire membership of most Worldcons, and it was simply the group that happened to show up in, in, in Beijing or Xingqiu that day. Uh, so the, the sheer numbers there are, are clearly overwhelming. I, I don't doubt uh, that I mean, at all. 
you, in theory, you could have a Worldcon with 35,000 people in Beijing. In Beijing, you could do that. Which um, also means, and actually be really quite invigorating, I have to say. I would not, okay, be disappointing and invigorating. If you've got 35,000 Chinese people to join a Worldcon in Beijing, and they voted mm -hmm. for their favorite stories from Science Fiction World, and they voted for the editors from Science Fiction World, and the artists that they'd seen, and the various books, then there would be an entire world of science fiction on the ballot that we didn't know about. And that would be a great thing. I would be, yeah. I would, as much as the stuff I love, I would be delighted to see that happen. I would be fascinated to see a Nigerian, like a, a, a work on in Lagos. Oh, that'd be fascinating, especially after talking to Nettie about yeah. her novel. I just really want to know more about Lagos. I, I will say though, that I think world is trying a bit. I mean, it's an all, it, it is the kind of organization it is. And it's a weird volunteer organization, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, Worldcon has been outside of North America more in the last 10 years than it has typically been in a long time. There's, there seems to be, I hear more international bids, more interest in running a Worldcon outside of the United States. I think that's true. And I think that, uh, I think Helsinki is up for a bid for some point in the near future. Um, I believe I think, so. I think there might also be another think, Japanese bid around, I, I've heard. Might, exactly. Well, one of the things you begin to realize when you look at numbers in, in terms of in terms of other kinds of popular culture or, or just general cultural kinds of things. Um, I go back to the C2E2 convention I was at this weekend. There was a panel, which I thought was actually very a, a very healthy idea. There was a panel which had been organized by uh, Tor Books, by the publicist there, Patty Garcia. It had uh, Daryl Gregory, whose new novel After Party, we're going to talk about with him sometime soon. John Scalzi, whose new novel Lock In and MD, MD Waters. And we had a room full of people. At the end of which, at a Worldcon, this would have been a huge hit. And I think it was Scalzi pointed out afterwards, this is probably the smallest panel discussion at this whole convention. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah. probably was. He was probably absolutely right. This was that small subset of a subset of people who wanted to talk about prose fiction, as I heard it described once at a comic convention. Something that's published without pictures. Um, the fact that we could, and I don't know how many people show up at this. I, I, I know that San Diego has gone over a hundred thousand at this point. I think Chicago may be at thirty or forty thousand, which is tiny by the standards, or moderate by the standards of a Comic Con, but would be the largest World Con by far in history if that mm. were to happen. Yep. So you realize what a small subset we are of the audience, which in nominally at least is basically interested in the same sorts of things we yes. are. They're interested yep. in various expressions of the fantastic. Yep. And then somebody says, how can you call it world science fiction? And you know what my answer to that is? Oh, grow what? up. Oh, grow up. Come on. It's just they call it that because they like it. That's all. They call it world science fiction because, well, okay, we think it's arrogant now. You go back and read the history. You read uh, one of the more amazing books in science fiction history, in fandom history, is Sam Moskowitz's The Immortal Storm. Now, first of all, think about that title for a minute. The Immortal Storm, that is worthy of a Wagnerian opera. That is Ragnarok. That is like the gods themselves are at war. What it's about was the fight between two groups of fans consisting of less than 30 fans each in New York in 1938. <laughs> um, that led to a world con, the, 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 the Exclusion Act that kept Asimov and Walheim. I, I don't remember all the details. Other people know far more about this than I do. But the whole idea of a Worldcon, when it was conceived, was about 45 to 50 people. 
all yes. from Brooklyn and Bronx and New Jersey and then maybe a couple from Philadelphia. So basically it was the, the world of New York science fiction. World of New York science fiction. And that's the way the science fiction community has defined itself historically. New York was the center around which science fiction revolved at that point. There were a few magazines, a few outliers like Weird Tales was published in Chicago. Everything else was in New York. If, if science fiction was being published in Germany and France and Japan, they didn't know about it and they didn't care about it. The world, as far as they were concerned, as far as the Walheims yep. and the Asimovs and uh, the John Michelle, who was one of the early, I guess, theorists of fandom, as far as they were concerned, the world was the world as they knew it. It was their neighborhood. And you know, if you had somebody come over from New Jersey or the Bronx, that was like, wow, this is like worldwide impact we're having here. Absolutely. We're more than halfway through our podcast, Gary. Right. Hmm? We're more, we're about two thirds way through our podcast. Right. Hmm. And it strikes me that we've waffled and we've rambled. And we've really not talked about much, which is great. But I think we should now take a moment to deeply frustrate all our listeners by adding something interesting here, and they have to get to this point in order to get to it. We 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 should we should add a, a little caveat at the beginning. If you could just say at the two thirds point, something becomes interesting. Now, you might say, Gary, but this puts an unreasonable pressure on us because we'd have to come up with something interesting at this point to say, right? Do you realize how many novels would sell more copies if they had a little note at the beginning saying, on page 263, this becomes really interesting? Or, in fact, if they just simply printed the good parts on different color paper stock. That'd be good, too. Absolutely. And then you just flick through. You go, I'll read the good parts. It'll be like The Princess Bride. Don't you recall yeah. that it starts off when the grandfather's reading him The Princess Bride? And uh, it's S. S. Morgenstern's book, but it's the good parts version, of, I, I seem to recall, is what, what mm -hmm. William Goldman was telling. But anyway, very quickly, what have you been reading of interest and of merit, and what can we recommend to our readers, listeners, out there in the world? Because the main couple of books that I've read lately, well, in fact, haven't been published yet, uh, one of which we'll be talking about next week, I think, when we talk to Joe Abercrombie, which is Half uh -huh. a King. Uh, that's the first book of his new young adult series, which I liked very much. I think it's a really kind of compulsively readable book. I picked it up, you know, sort of not sure if I was even going to read it at about 10 o'clock of a Saturday evening. And I read the first two pages and I thought this seems, frankly, woefully generic. But I read another couple of pages and then suddenly it was two o'clock in the morning. Really? Yeah. So I enjoyed it a great deal, uh, and I'm looking forward very eagerly to the sequel, uh, or se well, the sequels, which are going to be out fairly quickly. What about you, my friend? Well, of the novels that are coming out, I guess in the next couple of weeks, uh, I, we may have talked about some. We'll, we probably will be talking uh, very soon with uh, Daryl Gregory about After Party, which is his. It, it's a very good novel, but it's also his most commercial novel for mm -hmm. reasons mm -hmm. that. It's actually been out in the States for, I think, about a week now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to go too far into that because we'll hope to talk to uh, Daryl about it. We talked a little bit, uh, other novels that are coming out um, very close to this podcast are Joe Walton's My Real Children and um, Mary Ricketts' The Memory Guard. Mm -hmm. And... They're, they're interesting in different ways. I mean, one of the things that uh, the Joe Walton novel is, is, is about is she's playing with alternate history in, a, in, in terms of a single character's 
life experience, but doing it in a way which I found, and I, I think I may have said this in, um, well, it's, it's like we're about a week before the review appears in Locus. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few novels where I thought could have been longer than it was. Yeah. I almost never think that about a novel. Yeah. But she's covering something like 60 or 70 years in the life of a woman whose, whose lives split into two separate historical tracks with alternate histories. Not, they're not just, it's not just a sliding doors thing. She's finally done with that trope, what a science fiction writer needs to do with that trope, which is that if you split the world in two, it's not going to be your personal life that splits in two, and the rest of history goes on as it is. It yep. means that the whole universe splits in two. In other words, she's understood um, the science fictional implications of the old sliding doors motif. And I found it just haunting and poignant and heartbreaking because it opens with, uh, and, I, and I'm not sure what to make of it, but it opens, and so I'm not giving anything away, with this 90-year-old woman in a nursing home who is completely addled as far as the attendants are concerned mm-hmm. because her memories are confused. But what she's doing is she's remembering both versions of her lives which separated into two completely different tracks in 1949. Yep. Um, and I, I'm not sure what to make of that. It's the kind of thing that Christopher Priest would do, I think. Yep. Uh, it's the kind of thing only British writers seem to do, that personal history and public history are somehow interchangeable and malleable in a way that I haven't figured out. But it, it deals, it, it, it's a way of looking at alternate history, which I think is just really fascinating. Um, and I think it's a really good novel. Okay. Um, now, Mary Rickerton, I'll say this for the Mary Rickett thing, and we talked to her briefly about it because we actually broke the story on this podcast. Yes, sir, yeah, we did. was being published. It's going to, all I will say about that is it's going to surprise people who have admired, it's going to surprise, but I think, please, a lot of readers who have admired her short fiction. Yep. I mean, there's other stuff around of interest. Uh, Ellen Datlow has a new anthology out this month, Fearful Symmetries. Mm-hmm. Gardner Dzois has a couple. Uh, there's a uh, Robert Silverberg tribute anthology and a Paul Anderson tribute an- uh, anthology coming out you know, th- th- right about now, uh, available from reputable retailers, as they say. Probably the, one of the books that I'm looking forward to most next month is the new Francis Harding novel, mm-hmm. which is uh, called Cuckoo Song. Uh, and we may find a way to talk to her here. Uh, obviously, My Real Children, the Joe Walton, which I've not read yet, but that comes out next month. And there's also a fairly mm-hmm. wacky-sounding new book of hers due out early next year. Uh, there's a few people we're going to be talking about talking to on the podcast, Gary, and they tie in with new books. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, there's we hope to talk to Joe Abercrombie next week about Half a King and what else is happening with him and all kinds of issues around epic fantasy and dark fantasy and grim dark fantasy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about chatting with uh, Jeff Vandermeer about his world-spanning Annihilation trilogy. And um, authority comes out, out in uh, about a week or two. On, I think uh, it's Su- Southern May. Reach, Southern Reach trilogy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that should be fascinating. And we're also going to have a chat with Anne Leckie about the Ancillary books, mm-hmm. her Ancillary trilogy. Um, and there's a batch of things I'm looking forward to later in the year. And maybe we shall try and drag some of those writers in. I'm very, very eager to read Peter Watts' new book, as I've said here before. Um, mm. Cameron Hurley has a new book coming from Angry Robot that sounds very interesting. So does Madeline Ashby, a book called Company Town, which sounds fascinating. Um, I do want to maybe see if we can find a way, I'm not sure who will talk to about it, to talk about 
uh, Beautiful Blood, which is the final Dragon Growl story from Lucia Shepard that will be coming out uh, in June. And we also have the K.J. Parker collection, which is coming out fairly soon. I think, I think it's a June book. You're talking about academic exercises? Academic exercises, yes. Now, I guess in fairness and in sort of the interest of you know full disclosure, the book's dedicated to me, so I can't sort of waffle on about it too much, but I think it's a great book. Please feel that. I mean, it's, it's, having a book dedicated to you is supremely cool. I'm the very I'm flattered, deeply flattered, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a Paul Park novel coming out in, let me see, in July called All Those Vanished Engines, which is a kind of uh, a, a triple alternate history. Um, and it's, it's, it's the first major work that Paul Park has had since the Princess of Romania series, which is still a series that I think should have become, I think it went on for maybe one volume too long. But I think it should it should be regarded as one of the recent classic series in in, in fantasy an alternate alternate fantasy worlds because I I admit to being a sucker for the kind of metafictional trick that Paul does in that if you find out that the entire world that we're living in is something that exists in a book in this other world in which he's writing about there's something really coolly platonic about that and I. Um, so I, I, I would still recommend to people who are looking for old books to, to, to catch up with. The Princess of Romania should uh, should have the, the the first three novels in that, well, the trilogy, then Quartet, um, I think should be modern classics. So I'm very much looking forward to all those vanished engines. So there's all kinds of books for people to go and buy and read and catch up with. Um, mm -hmm. all, all sorts of interesting things. We should have some fun stuff on the podcast, I think, in the coming month or two. We, we got got sort of busy and you know, sort of rattled a few cages, so there won't be any any episodes that are quite so shambolically rambling as this one in the next handful. So because this is this is this is how we started. We started by rambling, and, <laughs> and, and since we cannot of... escape the grim, bleak, heat death of award conversation, uh, there will be um, Nebula Award winners quite soon. Mm -hmm. uh, we obviously heard that that, that Winters won Dick uh, the other day. Sorry, yes. <laughs> that's terrible. Ben Winters won the Philip yes, K. Dick Award, and the British yeah. Science Fiction Awards were also uh, announced. Since we're going to drop in a little bit of irrelevant Cood Street news, maybe we should have that at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Now Cood Street news. Uh, we could do that. We could do bulletins. And actually, somebody we've been talking about having on the podcast. Offline, Gary was Chris Priest and Nina Allen. Nina Allen won one of the British Science Fiction Awards, uh, and congratulations to her for doing so. I guess one thing we might sort of circle around since we talked about the book and not loving the book the other day uh, is it was very, very sad. I was very sad to hear that William Patterson died the other week. Author uh, of the Major Heinlein biography. Yeah, I had uh, I, I I just um, had read the Heinlein biography, and there. I, I, I found the same problems with it as, as in the first one, but but not problems in terms of research. It's an assiduous job of putting together everything that you want to know about Heinlein, and, and the two-volume biography is going to be the resource that we go to for Heinlein from now on. And I had emailed, uh, he had emailed me a couple of weeks ago uh, about doing a book on Evan Vogt, which yep. I thought would be really interesting because uh, there's a certain, Bill Patterson, who I don't think, I, I think I only met once, was a kind of scholar who was rigorous and disciplined 
and essentially a fan scholar. In other words, yeah. essentially largely uncritical, but assiduous. And and that that's a valid way of approaching things. I've seen a lot of books. There are books about Bradbury. There are books about Eric Frank Russell. There are um, any number of um, important books in the history of science fiction, biographical studies, literary studies, that come from people who just love what they're writing about. And from an academic point of view, that uncritical love is problematical. From a fan point of view, and from a uh, purely bibliographical point of view, they're pulling together information that needs to be pulled together. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that Patterson did the biography that he did of Heinlein. I wish somebody had written a biography of Theodore Sturgeon like this. I wish somebody had taken this much interest in finding out the real story, the real, real life, Asimov or Clark. Because so many, so many of these celebrity science fiction writers, we depend on their own memoirs, which are notoriously unreliable and unintrospective and uninformative. Um, and so you really want somebody to take these writers with a kind of serious intent that Bill Patterson took Heinlein. As far as I know, as a matter of fact, when I got the email from him talking about doing a book on Van Vogt, that was the first clue I had that he had any interest in the field at all yeah. outside of Heinlein. Yeah, there you go. Um, and there are almost mythological works of research, you know, non-fiction you know, non have never really appeared. I mean, I was mm -hmm. disappointed, though I understand why, to hear that um, Eileen Gunn's biography of Avram Davidson is not going to be completed. Well, it's not at all. I've not no, no, I think it proved to be way too much and difficult to... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, the yeah. thing about that is... That, okay, the, the, the Heinlein biography unfairly got compared to Julie Phillips's biography of Alice Sheldon or James Tiptree. And... Yeah. It's un unfair for a couple of reasons. One is that Julie was a, is, I should say, a skilled journalist, not a science, she, she did not start out as a science fiction fan. She learned, and I think learned brilliantly how to read Tiptree's story. She learned how to read science fiction in the process of doing that book. Yeah. Uh, but the point is she had an astonishing story to tell. I mean, Alice Sheldon's story from being a little yeah. girl in Africa to you know, growing up and becoming a uh, aerial photographer and mm -hmm. interpreter. Uh, the whole story was just a perfect yeah, she, story. She, she's not the only one with an extraordinary story. Well, Cord Rainer Smith has an extraordinary story. He does, as we've said here before. before. A bunch of them. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. Heinlein's story was not, frankly, that dramatic. Uh, his early political career was interesting, but you know, by, by the mid-40s, he had become a successful writer who was being a successful writer. And that brings us to the basic problem of writing, writing literary biographies. Uh, um, Sturgeon had some serious problems with his stepdad, I realize that, and he had some odd ideas late in life, but by and large, his life was a writer's life, and writer's lives are not in and of themselves necessarily interesting. Yeah. You know, if you're John Cheever and you're a spectacular alcoholic over a period of decades, a biography can talk about that, but that's, that's not going to explain the fiction very much. No. Science fiction has not had that many colorful writers. Um, well, also, I mean, yeah, writing sometimes does not lead to a colorful life. It leads to sitting in a well, room by yourself making things up. But anyway. Or you're being, or you're being nuts. I mean, I've, th th there was a biography of Lovecraft by Elsprague de Camp, uh, who was a great admirer of his. It wasn't a completely honest biography, as I recall, because Lovecraft 
was a very problematical figure. He was enormously sexist and racist and anti-Semitic and anti-Semitic, anti-Southern European, anti-Italian. Anti-anti, um, right. Every, anti-everything, yeah. Pretty nasty Anti-everything. He was pretty much a nasty man. And, and there's some, something fascinating about the idea that sort of the iconic template of 20th century horror, which is, it really works. I mean, some of that stuff really works very well, um, is, is being written by somebody who is despicable in many ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, we, I don't know if we talked to her on the podcast, but I know that very publicly, Nettie Okorafor was, when she got the World Fantasy Award for Who Fears Death, was befuddled by the notion that she had an award in the shape of the head of a man who would wanted her, who would, would have wanted her to die. Well, I mean, you could look at it from the perspective of bring me the head of my enemies, but um, yeah. probably not very usefully. Look, these things will not be answered, and we shall, we shall, as I say, we shall not ramble like this again for months. But I thought I might interject as well and answer a half-asked question mm-hmm. that relates to trivia to do with this very podcast, Gary. On a couple of occasions, I have referred to, and I think you have referred to as well, people who are known to us and who are our friends and have been on the podcast as being of this parish. And it has been asked, what what are we referring to? Or what am I referring to when I refer to of this parish? From whence did this come? And I don't know if you have an answer to this. I do. Do you have an answer, Gary? Well, uh, uh, of this parish happens to be your phrase. Uh, I understood exactly what you meant by it, and it dealt with a kind of archaic definition of a kind of governmental and social district. Yeah, well, it's, it's, suspect- it, it, it has to do with uh, religious di- uh, districts you know, the, well, of, of your local parish. Something very specific, yes. Yeah. So explain what you mean by of this parish, because I've been massively offended by that ever since... You said it in the first place, and I thought I'd just set that up so we could... You've been massively offended, have you? No, I wasn't offended no, at I all. Offended. I, thought, no, no. I thought there was but a... Basically, what I mean... Okay, I will first of all tell you that it comes from my favorite podcast of all time, the word podcast, mm-hmm. right? They would make reference to of this parish, and I knew exactly what they meant. They meant uh-huh. of our community. Mm-hmm. So, if you like, the Cood Street Parish, which were it real and were we people who would talk in a parish or in, in a local church and have a local group of parishioners who came to our church every week. Uh, the Creed Street pa- Parish is that group of people that listens to our podcast regularly, who appears on it, who are interested, who, who discuss it. They are our, the Creed Street community. Absolutely. And the Creed Street community are people who are gracious enough to agree to talk to us, uh, yes. knowing how unpredictable and incoherent the conversation may become, and the people who are even more astonishingly patient enough to listen to us. And that seems to me to define a certain kind of community, which I think is um, still enormously flattering. It's incredibly flattering. Um, And it's a group of people, like-minded people, who uh, I have to say I feel very warmly towards. And I'm always eager to welcome more people into it, uh, whether they be... People who come on the podcast regularly, dear friends like Ellen Clagis and Paul Cornell and Peter Straub and all sorts of other great people we've had on here. Um, Or people who like 
Paul and everybody else who listen to the podcast and who talk to us on Twitter and social media about it, that kind of thing. So if you listen to the podcast, if you're interested in the podcast, you are indeed, as far as we're concerned at least, of this parish. And we would love to hear from you. Yes. And with that, you poor, brave souls who have ventured as far (laughs) as the nearly 60-minute mark, I think we're done with this ramble, Gary. Well, we covered. I, I like to think of it rather than a ramble as a as as a as a number of subtopics randomly approached. Well, yes, or you could look at it as a you know sort of Schrodinger's sense. You know, it either made sense or it didn't. But you have to open the box to look. That's a good point. That's a good point because uh, people people should should understand. I think the principle you established earlier in the podcast is a good one. People should understand that. Probably at the two-thirds point, we will begin to make sense, and that mainly may only last for five or ten minutes. At best. But there is always some segment of the podcast that will make sense. You just, Probably. You just don't, and you know, don't and we can sit here and see. You can plead current alcohol c- consumption, and I can plead recent, <laughs> recent past <laughs> alcohol Absolutely. consumption to, to explain it. And look, if we had a real producer, we might organize things, Gary, but we don't, so we just have to ramble. Well, think about doing that. I mean, we'll, uh, we, we should we should ask our listeners to express their honest, candid, unvarnished opinions about how much better organized we should be. Should we have a producer? Should we have opening and closing pre-recorded musical interludes and introductions? And uh, how 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 podcasty do people want this to really become? Because after all. We are here to please the listeners. No, no, we are. No, yeah, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on that cheery note, dear fellow parishioners, <laughs> we might wind it up. I've got a Muppet movie to go see. And I have, actually, I have nothing as interesting as that. I have term papers to mark. Yeah, and then after that, I'm going to go and read the new Val McDermott book that I started reading. Um, I did, I have to share one term because I, I would have tweeted this, but I just marked a paper in which a student was talking about censorship. Uh, and it took me a minute to realize that what she had spelled was S, it was two words, S-C-N-S-O-R, censor, and then ship, S-H-I-P. A ship on, 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 upon which there were censors. A ship on... I thought, okay, that, it doesn't make any sense at all in terms of her idea. But somebody should write a science fiction story about a censor ship. What would... Well, what I mean... We have. Well, sh- well surely, surely the Enterprise was, was such a thing. If you go around blowing things right, up, just, isn't that a way of censoring the reality? Actually, actually, those submarines that are out uh, about 1,200 miles southwest of where you are right now the by the way perth has gotten more worldwide publicity in the last month or so than it probably has in the last decade because of this missing um malaysian airlines plane but isn't that what they sent out to try to find the uh, signals from the from from from, from the aircraft were yeah. sensor ships uh, yes yes but s-e-n-s-o-r yes yeah so Oh, well, on that cheery note, we will wind up. On that cheery note, we will talk to you again next week, presumably with a guest who is 
more coherent than either of us will be. Well, there are actually things to talk to him about. I'm actually really excited to be talking to Joe because there's all kinds of cool things to talk to him about that are worth discussing, and I think he will prove to be an articulate and fascinating guest. Okay, so next week. Until then, take good care, my friend. You too.